So today uh, is part seven of um, a long series that we've been in, and the name of the series is Deeply Satisfied. And we actually spent the first half of the series uh, talking about these um, digital devices that we all have and how we spend a ton of time on them, but they don't deeply satisfy us. In fact, we're often uh, more anxious, um, we're more stressed out, we're more tired, we feel more disconnected. Um, And part of it is our lives can feel really full. We're busy all of the time where there's always something we're doing or always something we're watching or something we're engaging or something that's pulling or competing for our attention. But again, we're rarely deeply satisfied. So uh, what are we missing? Well, a couple of weeks ago, uh, we talked about the idea of leisure and what true leisure is and how important it is. And then uh, last week, we talked about the idea of solitude, um, how significant it is to have those moments in our days or in our weeks or those moments every few months uh, where we can just be alone with our thoughts, alone with ourselves, and alone with God. And we underestimate how these two things, uh, just simple leisure and solitude, can contribute to our overall well-being, right? our emotional and our social and our mental health, and how these two things can actually help us experience a really deep and satisfying life. Now, today I want to add a third thing to that list, um, something that we do not experience as much as we think we do, or as much as we could, or as much as we should, but it's something that every single one of us was made to experience. In fact, it's something that I might suggest is at the top of the list in terms of um, one of the most deeply satisfying aspects of what it means to be a human being. And uh, when I tell you what it is, um, you might think, oh, I already knew that, uh, or I already know that that's important in my life, or I already have that or I already experienced that, or didn't we hear a sermon about that a couple of months ago? Um, And before you uh, subtly tune out, I would guess probably 90% of us do not experience this thing as deeply as we think we do, or do not experience it in the ways that we were made to. Okay, So uh, I'm talking about community. Community is experiencing intentional relationships where we are known and loved by others. We were made for this, meaning uh, we were made to not be able to live without this, to not be human without this. The story of creation is told in Genesis 1 and 2. These are the first two chapters of the Bible. Um, And uh, by the way, Genesis, as we probably might remember, if you grew up going to church or you know these stories, it tells the story of how the world was created and how human beings were created. And the story that it tells about those things is very different from what we learn from science. And it would be easy to think that these are two uh, contradictory accounts and that we have to choose one of them. And so we either throw out science which doesn't seem very smart, right? And doesn't seem very consistent with the way we live the rest of our lives. Um, Or we throw out the Bible. And so just a a little plug here. In January, we're going to unpack this specific issue. What do we do when it feels like science and faith or uh, science and the Bible seem at odds with one another, particularly in places like 
Genesis. So we're going to get to all, if you're interested in those kind of questions, or you've always wrestled with those kind of questions, or part of some of your doubts about faith of the Bible is tied up in some of those questions, we'll get to all of that. But today, um, I want to just ask you to believe that Genesis 1 and 2 are true at some level. That they are teaching us something true about our world and about what it means to be human. So, in Genesis 1, uh, do we remember how it starts? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then the rest of the story unpacks and explains this creation. God creates light. Do you remember that? And then it says, God saw that the light was good. And then he creates the sky and the oceans and the land. And it says, God saw that it was good. And then he creates the trees and the plants and all sorts and kinds of vegetation. And it says, God saw that it was good. And then he creates the sun and the moon and the stars. And it says, God saw that it was good. And then he creates these amazing uh, birds that fly in the sky and these uh, creatures that swim in the ocean. And it says, God saw that it was good. And then he creates all the, the animals that live on the land. And it says, God saw that it was good. Does anyone see a pattern here? <laughs> right? Uh, the word uh, for good is the Hebrew word tov. And it can mean good, and maybe a better translation would be deeply satisfying. Right? Every time God made something new, he stood back like an artist, admiring a painting, like a sculptor admiring her sculpture, like a woodworker admiring a, a piece of furniture that they've made, like a, an architect admiring their, their blueprints, their design, like a, a car aficionado admiring a Lamborghini, right? God himself stood back and he was deeply satisfied because the things that he made were deeply satisfying. They were good. And then we're told that he makes the first humans. Genesis 2 tells us this in the rest of the story. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living being. And then look at this. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man to be alone. For the first time in the story, something is not good. It's not tov. It is not deeply satisfying. Why? Because the man is alone. Now think about that for a second. He's not really alone. There's all kinds of deer there with him. There's crickets chirping in the background, right? There's blue jays flying in the air. There's lake trout just waiting to be caught and eaten or thrown back. Um, there's Fuji apple tree orchards there. There's Rainier cherries. There's mountains and there's streams and there's lakes. And there's, there's everything he could possibly want. And guess what? There's also God there with him. But in some strange way, it's not enough. There's something that he was made to experience that he is not able to experience. Even with all of these amazing things around him, he's missing something. And he's not going to be deeply satisfied until he has it. 
And so you know what happens next? God makes another human being. This other human being is like him, but also different than him. Uh, For starters, uh, she's a woman, right? So she looks different. She's wired a little bit differently. She's even physically different than he is. And so at this point, uh, we could uh, focus on some things in the story about gender and sexuality, right? Because eventually this man takes this woman and she becomes his wife and they together create a family. But don't miss the most foundational aspect of this story. Humans are made for relationship with other humans. We were made for relationship with other people, other people who can truly know us and truly love us. And when we don't have that, when we don't experience that, it is not good. It's not deeply satisfying. Now, uh, for some of us, marriage and family relationships can play a role in this. But the rest of the Bible makes it really clear that is not enough. We need intentional relationships and friendships beyond our immediate family. And if there's anyone we could look to, it would be the example of Jesus, right? He was never even married. He didn't have kids. And yet he was very intentional about calling these 12 friends, these 12 guys around him and creating a community with them. In fact, look at this. One time Jesus is hanging out with his friends, his disciples, and uh, someone mentions that his family has shown up at the house. Your mom and your brothers, they're outside. They're looking for you. They're wondering where you are. And look at what Jesus says. Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Jesus is saying this, you, you are my family. Now there's a, a bunch more passages we could read particularly in the New Testament, ones that you might even be familiar with if you grew up in church about how important it is to have people in your life, people that can encourage you, that can accept you for who you are, that can love you, that can care for you, right? that can celebrate with you, that can mourn with you. But I think we all know this already up in our minds. The problem is very few of us actually experience that kind of of community. I mentioned this report um, a few months ago. Uh, the U.S. Surgeon General recently released this 82-page report entitled, Our Epidemic of Loneliness and Isolation, and describes our deep need for connection and community. So, so even if you're not a follower of Jesus, Or maybe you don't uh, really trust the Bible, or maybe that story from Genesis is kind of strange, right? Um, Just listen to what the Surgeon General writes. Social connection is a fundamental human need, as essential to survival as food, water, and shelter. Throughout history, our ability to rely on one another has been crucial to survival, Now, even in modern times, and the report later goes on to talk about all the technological advances we have in these modern times, but even in modern times, we human beings are biologically wired for social connection. That's just another way of saying what Genesis 1 and 2 have said. We are wired 
fundamentally wired for community and relationships. Now, uh, the Surgeon General goes on in this report to say that half of us are now experiencing a sense of loneliness. By the way, most of these statistics come from just before the pandemic, so things have gotten even worse. Most of us are experiencing less social connection than we ever have before, and all of us are spending more time in isolation by ourselves than we ever have before. Now, based on last week's sermon about solitude, right? you would think more alone time would be a good thing. But remember, solitude is when you are truly alone with your thoughts, with your feelings, with yourself, with God. It's when there's no other input, no other voices. And that kind of solitude is restorative, it's creative, it's restful, it's good for our souls, it's healthy for us. We need that kind of solitude in our lives. But that's not what most of us are experiencing when we're by ourselves. You see, what's unique in the time period that we all find ourselves in is that we are always digitally connected, right? Which gives the illusion of being socially and emotionally connected, but it's not. Because there are two things that are required for us to experience true and authentic relationships, true and genuine community, the kind of relationships we were made to experience that will deeply satisfy us. The first is embodied presence. That means being physically present with other people. Being physically present face to face. Now, we all know this at some level. We know it's not the same when we're just texting with someone it's not the same when we're chatting with someone. It's not the same when you just read someone's uh, Facebook post, you like someone's Instagram image, you see pictures of somebody's vacation, right? Or you're sending memes and emojis back and forth. All of these things are fun. All of these things are, are entertaining. They fill up our time when we're bored, and that's okay. But they do not create or sustain or nurture true, authentic relationships. You see, for that, you need embodied presence. There's something that happens when we are physically together. Uh, neuroscientists will tell us this, that when we can see each other, when we can see our facial expressions, when we can hear each other, when we can uh, touch each other, when we can share meals with each other, when we can have significant conversations with each other, when we can uh, celebrate together, when we can weep together, all of these things will do something physically to us because we are physically together in a way that does not happen with digital connection. And that leads to the second thing that is required to experience true and authentic community and that's vulnerability. Vulnerability. Uh, Brene Brown, if you're familiar with her, she has been sort of beating this drum for many years. She says this, uh, Vulnerability is uncertainty, risk, and emotional exposure. My three favorite things, right? <laughs> and yet, there is no intimacy without vulnerability. Right? You can't truly be known. You can't truly be loved. You can't have true and authentic relationships with other people without risking something, without emotional exposure, without vulnerability. 
Um, C.S. Lewis, if you know him, he was saying this decades ago. He said this, there is no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. But here's what we've done without even realizing it. And none of us have done this intentionally. We have mostly settled for and embraced so much digital connection and communication. And it doesn't contain either of these things, right? It doesn't include embodied presence or vulnerability, which makes us feel like we are connected to others when we're really not. And it's why the statistics show us over and over and over, the more time we spend on our digital devices, the more isolated we feel. So I have two challenges for you today, and then um, I'm actually going to let somebody else come up here and finish the sermon for me. So uh, first, uh, challenge number one, first practice I want to challenge you to do is limit social media chatting and texting. Meaning, um, there are limited benefits to these forms of communication, right? Now, of course, there are scenarios where these things can be really helpful. If I'm picking somebody up, right, it's really helpful to just text, like, hey, I'm here, I'm waiting outside, where are you, right? Um, Or if somebody has uh, some unique health needs, uh, perhaps using an online forum like Facebook, where you can provide updates to a large group of, of friends and family, that can be very helpful. If you're a photographer, Right? And you use Instagram to show your work online. That's a really good use of that platform. But too often, social media and digital communication has become a substitute for true relational connection. So just figure out how to set some really clear boundaries. Um, one option is just to get rid of social media altogether. I know a lot of people who have no social media accounts, and they are deeply satisfied people, right? They are not missing out on anything important. But maybe you do need social media, right? And if you do, maybe you just decide, I'm just going to check it once a day, and that'll be enough. Or I'm just going to remove it completely from my phone so it's not always there, and I'm not always tempted to check it, and I'm just going to check it on my laptop at the end of each day. And then what you're doing is you're using it for its very limited and specific benefits, but it doesn't become a substitute for real connection. Uh, The same goes with endless chatting or texting on our phones. And we don't often think of this as a substitute, but it often is. How often do we ignore or neglect the people that are physically in front of us to carry on a conversation with someone who's not actually there. So, practice number one. Figure out how to set up some rules and some boundaries to limit social media and digital communication. Practice number two. Prioritize face-to-face time with people. Which just seems really, really simple. It means when you have the choice of spending time with other people, like face-to-face, physical conversation-focused time, choose it. Because we need it more than we realize. Now, it's never going to be as easy as just scrolling on here. It's never going to be as convenient. It's going to take more time and more effort to be face-to-face embodied with people. Uh, More significantly, it takes vulnerability and risk. 
I am often scared that the more time I spend with you, the better you'll get to know me, and you might not like me or respect me as much. But if we want to experience abundant lives, deeply satisfying lives, the kind of lives that we were made for, remember, it was not good for the man to be alone. If we want to be who we were made to be, we will prioritize face-to-face real relationships and community with others. Um, Andrew Knopp, whom many of you know, uh, went on the men's retreat with a whole bunch of us uh, several weeks ago. And he wrote a reflection about it, about the experience of just hanging out with a bunch of other guys for a weekend. And I think it captures better um, than I can say about what community is all about. So I want to invite up Andrew uh, to share his reflection with you. Let's give Andrew a hand. Thank you. All right, this is called the opportunity cost of playing it safe. I've been attending the NDC men's retreat for the past six years since moving to Colorado. Every year when the retreat is announced, I find myself wanting to attend, but also wanting to disengage and sit it out. I'm not entirely sure where this comes from, but it seems it might be connected to an internal battle of self-preservation versus the desire for connection. Should I stay home where it's safe or risk being too vulnerable, misunderstood, or embarrassed? Should I preserve a tough exterior or take the risk of connection? This year, our speaker, J.R. Briggs, discussed with us what it means to be a man and some of the lifelong challenges we face, such as apathy, lust, cynicism, and pride. Ironically, these challenges felt like they could be at the core of my desire to disengage. The men's retreat starts with a beautiful drive from Denver into the Rockies. It almost feels as if with each switchback, the anxieties and pressures of the city have a harder time following. I shared a car ride with friends, some of whom I had met or at least established a baseline friendship at a prior retreat. Over the years, we've shared meals, discussions, arguments, laughs, and laments. These are the layers of connection built up over that baseline friendship. At the retreat, before each teaching session, Norton brings a handful of guys to answer some hard-hitting questions like, what's your favorite hot beverage? Or, if you could compete in the Olympics, what event would you choose? Before one of the sessions, he brought up Adam Coleman and Stephen Redden, who had been attending the men's retreat since the early days of NDC. As they shared stories from years past, I found myself distracted by the memory from a couple years ago when I had recently lost my mom. Both these guys had been there to listen and offer support. And before that, many of the guys in this very room were there the same day I heard the news of my mom's sudden passing. They had simply been present in a time of pain. That day, I had debated staying home rather than attending the start of a new D group with these guys. Would it have been better off to stay stay where it felt safer and less exposed? Did these guys think 
me less of a man for crying in front of them? Seems like a pretty silly thing to even think, even question now. As I reflect on this year's men's retreat and the ones before, I begin to wonder if it is really safer to stay home. What does safe even mean? Sure, there's less chance for embarrassment, but also less chance for connection, less chance for added layers to be built over that baseline. I used to think depth of friendship, friendship meant, uh, meant learning about people's deep, dark secrets, but I'm starting to think it has more to do with building layers of honest, shared experiences with one another over time. One night after dinner, a group of us who had known each other for, from a past D group had an honest and vulnerable discussion about marriage and relationships. While it was a bit uncomfortable, it ended in laughs and certainly deeper connections. No, it's not always easy or safe, but could it be worth it? In today's tech-driven and work-obsessed culture, it's more challenging than ever for men to build genuine connections with one another. But I think one thing I took away from the weekend in the mountains is that we were created for it, and we need it. So next time you hear me being indecisive about ending or attending a men's retreat, please knock some sense into me. I need it. Uh, let me just pray for us. <clears throat> We do all need uh, some sense knocked into us, God, um, because it's easy to just try to live life independently, to try to do our own thing, um, to stay disconnected, um, to not chance or risk being vulnerable or being known. And so help us uh, to have the courage that we need to pursue the relationships we need, whatever that looks like. We pray all this in your name. Amen.